Good evening. My name is David Bowes. I'm Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you all here. As uh, many of you know, we don't usually do things in the evening, but we occasionally like to give people who work for a living and don't necessarily work in the policy wonk business a chance to come here. So uh, I hope you'll let me know if you find this more or less useful to you uh, to do it this way. Um, we will uh, have some wine and cheese upstairs, and we will also have some books available for sale. So please stick around until the end of the event, and you can purchase a book, get it signed, have a glass of wine, have more discussion. We're here today to discuss Thomas Jefferson. George Will called Thomas Jefferson the man of the millennium because he said, this, the story of this millennium is the gradual expansion of freedom and the expanding inclusion of variously excluded groups. And I think that's a good definition of what the past millennium has been about and what the Cato Institute's mission has been at the very end of that millennium or the beginning of the next millennium. For years, Thomas Jefferson dominated the homepage of the Cato Institute's website. We recently did a redesign and we took him off, not because we got disillusioned with Jefferson, but because being good capitalist individualists, we decided we wanted that uh, landscape on the website back uh, so we could put our own things on it. I think Jefferson wrote the most eloquent piece of libertarian writing in history, the Declaration of Independence. And When you go upstairs for a glass of wine, please take a look at our treasure up there. It is an 1823 copy of the Declaration of Independence made directly from the original by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. In the Declaration, Jefferson declared that we are all entitled to the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a concept that became so deeply ingrained in America that no one, save Hillary Rodham Clinton and Rick Santorum, has dared to challenge the basic concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But Jefferson is controversial. Was he too radical? Was he a dreamer, a hypocrite, not just a slave owner, but a racist, and simultaneously a man who forced himself upon a helpless slave? A new book about Jefferson's post-presidential years may help us answer those questions. Or, then again, it may not, because I looked at the reviews, and the first review I found says, In Crawford's pages, Jefferson comes off as an irresponsible, impractical, self-serving, and self-deluded man who rarely lived up to his ideals. And then the second review that I found said that Crawford gives us Jefferson, the older, wiser, even more radical Jefferson, and offers a humanizing correction to the recent tide of Jefferson damning. So you'll have to read the book and find out for yourself (laughs) what Jefferson is in this book. Um, Alan Pell Crawford is the author of a previous book about old Virginia called Unwise Passions, a true story of a remarkable woman and the first great scandal of 18th century America. He has had a residential fellowship at the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. He's been a congressional press secretary and a writer for many publications. What none of his biographies will tell you, I checked around, is that we first met when he was hired as the editor of New Guard magazine, published by Young Americans for Freedom. And when he proved too independent and high-spirited to edit an organization magazine, the bosses there looked for somebody more pliable, and they found me. Uh, So that's when we first met. Uh, But he put his time in the conservative movement to good use, writing a book called Thunder on the Right, The New Right and the Politics of Resentment. 
No doubt it was that experience that prompted him to retreat to the saner climes of both contemporary Richmond and old Virginia. So please welcome the author of Twilight at Monticello, The Final Years of Thomas Jefferson, Alan Crawford. Thank you, David. Um, you know, I, I really am moved, and I mean this sincerely, to be speaking in the Friedrich A. Hayek Auditorium. But I have a confession to make. It was only a few weeks ago that I actually read The Road to Serfdom. I had some notion going into the experience what uh, Hayek's argument was going to be, uh, but I was nonetheless astonished at the uh, profound humility and humanism of that book. And I can see how this would be sort of a life-changing experience. Um, And it's kind of sad, really. I I can only imagine what my life might have been like had I read Hayek sooner. And who knows, I might have made something of myself. This is not to suggest that I didn't have uh, uh, come to the experience of reading Hayek uh, ignorant of classical liberal thought or of libertarianism generally. David referred to uh, that was probably around 76 or so when we met. I can remember living in a boarding house three years before that at 625 East Capitol. And my roommates were uh, largely economics types. David Henderson, um, Mark Frazier, Stephen Beckner. And I can remember, and I was amused at this at the time, and it amuses me now, I can remember their late-night conversations about, how do I say this delicately, dating objectivist women. (laughs) And I remember thinking, well, how do you even know such a thing? And then I got to know a few objectivist women, and I realized that they don't leave, that never is mysterious for very long. Um, Diane Peterson. Does anybody remember Diane Peterson? Diane uh, was very articulate on a number of subjects. She expressed herself colorfully. She expressed herself very well and very often. And back in the 1990s, uh, when Diane was sentenced to nine years in prison for, as she put it, engaging in free trade, uh, asked me afterwards what she was trading in, I'll tell you. Uh, She wrote to me and she said, you know, federal women's prison isn't so bad. She then offered what to me was the perfect description of libertarian hell. She said, living here is like spending the entire day at the Department of Motor Vehicles and never being able to leave. (laughs) And, you know, I'm going to offer one final uh, recollection that will serve, I hope, as a more or less elegant um, uh, introduction to our subject, which, of course, is Thomas Jefferson. Back in around 1975, the man in town used to host what he called conservative soirees. And at one of these, I heard Carl Hess speak. And this must have been around 75, 76, because people then were still talking about Gore Vidal's novel, Burr. And Hess was asked what he thought of Aaron Burr. And he said his only complaint with Burr was that he didn't shoot Hamilton sooner. Now... I, I can well imagine 
that Jefferson might have thought much the same thing, uh, except that he probably would have hoped someone would have shot Burr and Hamilton both. The Republic might have been safer had, had they done so, but I really want to talk today about a little-known episode in Jefferson's own career in which the country needed protection from him. June 1807, with Great Britain and France at war, and the 55-gun British Leopard opened fire on the USS Chesapeake just off the Virginia coast near Norfolk. Three Americans were killed in the action, 18 were wounded, and the British seized four sailors who were alleged to have deserted from the Royal Navy. This was only the latest in a series of confrontations between British, French, and American ships, and Jefferson, eager to avoid a shooting war and hoping to punish both European powers by denying them the New World's raw materials, pushed through Congress the first of a series of laws prohibiting U.S. ships from sailing into foreign ports. This policy, Jefferson referred to in a wonderful oxymoron as one of peaceable coercion. The experiment, as Jefferson called it, would teach a war-weary world a great lesson. Other countries would learn how they, too, could avoid war. They would also discover, Jefferson believed, how citizens of a free republic, united in defense of their rights, would respond in a crisis. Now, the results of this embargo were immediate, but hardly what Jefferson had in mind. Exports fell. Ports in the north closed. 30,000 sailors, shipyard workers, and fishermen lost their jobs. The agricultural south, deprived of its markets, went into a comparable economic tailspin. Now, the effect on European powers, however, was negligible. Forrest MacDonald, one of the few historians to write much about Jefferson's second term, likened this effort to bend England and France to America's will to a flea trying to break up a dogfight by threatening suicide. <laughs> Later versions of the policy would be designed to close loopholes in the original legislation, each of which it was assumed was responsible for the policy's failure. These later versions would impose ever steeper penalties on Americans determined to defy the embargo. And defy it they did. Ships ostensibly sailing from one port to another mysteriously found themselves blown off course all the way to Canada, to the West Indies, and even to Liverpool. Enterprising souls also began to move goods by boat and wagon into Canada for shipment overseas, and Jefferson's response was to instruct Treasury Secretary Gallatin to detain all suspicious vessels. Government agents who tried to, shot, to, to uh, stop them were fired on with bloodshed on both sides. Now, by this time, lawmakers north and south of the Potomac were outraged, and tensions in the congressional boarding houses on Jenkins Hill ran high. By this time, the president's mansion had become a very lonely place, and in early 1808, an increasingly isolated Jefferson suffered from what would surely be considered a total nervous breakdown. On March 25th, the Friday, Jefferson felt himself falling prey, he said, to a debilitating headache. By Sunday, the pain, he said, was severe. It persisted until the following Sunday, April 3rd, 
And two weeks later, Jefferson told Attorney General Caesar Rodney that during this period, he had been capable of conscious thought for only about an hour a day. The contentious congressional session, Jefferson said, had worn him down to a state of almost total incapacity for business. For days on end, when the nation's position in the world was uh, threatened and liberties at home were being restricted as never before, the man most responsible for this calamitous situation, by his own admission, lay in a darkened room, helpless and insensible. Now, when Jefferson emerged from his bedchamber entirely recovered, he said, he was more determined than ever to see his experiment in peaceable coercion through to its conclusion. Now he began to enforce the embargo with a zeal that struck even longtime allies as excessive. He announced, for example, that smuggling on Lake Champlain, engaging in free trade, as Diane Peterson would call it, amounted to nothing short of armed insurrection. And it was an insurrection, Jefferson added, too powerfully, too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary judicial proceedings. Resistance equaled rebellion, and Jefferson ordered all military authorities in the Lake Champlain region, by all means in their power, by force of arms or otherwise, to put down the rebels. In early May, Jefferson ordered Gallatin to consider every shipment of provisions, lumber, flaxseed, tar, cotton, tobacco, etc., as sufficiently suspicious for detention. If in doubt, Jefferson said, consider me voting for detention. In July, he began to use the Navy to blockade American ports, stop ships, and seize cargo. Desperate for results, Jefferson now prohibited all shipping along the Atlantic coast, including routine commerce between American ports. The movement of of vessels on lakes Rivers and bays was also outlawed. Ships to and from ports adjacent to foreign territory, meaning Canada, was also prohibited unless the ships received special exemption from the president himself. Any boat or ship suspected of unlawful commerce could be seized at will. They would be held until their release was personally authorized by the president. In August... Jefferson said that Congress must legalize all means which may be necessary to obtain its end, and in September he successfully urged the prosecution for treason of anyone who defied the embargo. Not only that, this celebrated civil libertarian urged the prosecution of treason for anyone who expressed disapproval of it. Too many were guilty of treason, he said, to be punished by death. So only the most guilty would be put to death, with those less so to suffer long punishment. The only treason trial resulting from defiance of the embargo, it should be noted, ended in an acquittal. Now, to classical liberals, this is an old, old story. What had begun as a restriction on trade with a foreign power had resulted in the suppression of economic and political liberties at home. While the effect on the European powers was minimal, the domestic impact had been enormous. In Jefferson and Civil Liberties, Leonard Levy observes that the embargo began as a means of coercing and starving England and France into respect for American rights, but rapidly became an instrument of coercion against American citizens. To avoid foreign war, Jefferson made domestic war. 
And surprise, surprise, the American people resented it. And when its champion's term in office ended in March of 1809, the achievements for which we remember Jefferson's presidency today, the Louisiana Purchase, the victory over the Barbary Pirates, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, were largely forgotten. For a decade or more, the embargo was Jefferson's legacy. And so it was a very unhappy man who returned to Monticello that month, convinced that his presidency had been a failure. For the immediate future, he said, all he really wanted to do was devote himself to his families, his family, his farms, and his books. But Jefferson was also a remarkably resilient 65 when he retired. He was also as optimistic a man as has ever lived. He still had two decades of life left to him, and he intended to use that time productively. For a full account of his remarkable activities, I refer you to the book itself. But much of his energy, suffice it to say, would be devoted to the establishment of the University of Virginia, the first wholly secular institution of higher learning in the New World. But it was also during Jefferson's retirement years, I believe, that he made his most profound contribution to American political thought. I said a minute ago that the uh, embargo was an old, old story, but what Jefferson made of this experience when he reflected on it almost a decade later, is something new and very encouraging. Unfortunately, this contribution to American political thought has been almost wholly overlooked, in large part, I believe, because it challenges the conventional wisdom. And Jefferson's evolving thought in this area is a direct result, I believe, of his miserable experience with the embargo. Let me explain in Spring and summer of 1816, the Virginia legislature, facing increases in the population of the Commonwealth's western counties, was debating the need for a new state constitution. The legislature was also addressing the advisability of changes in the state's educational system. The legislature would soon debate the best location for a new state college, and it would end up, as you may know, in Charlottesville. Jefferson had something to do with that. During this period, Jefferson's views on constitutions and on the role of public education was regularly solicited, and his thinking on the proper distribution of power in a constitutional republic and on the role of public education took mature and surprising form. And the more Jefferson had reflected on these subjects, the more he had become convinced first that there was a fatal flaw in the American political system, but second, that the situation could still be redeemed. The flaw, as Jefferson's friend Benjamin Rush had written, was that America was rapidly becoming a republic in name only. Power derived from the people, it was true, but they possessed this power only on the days of their elections. After that, Rush said, it is the property of their rulers. Now, this rapid transfer of power from local governments to the states, from the states to the federal government, was turning the ennobling challenges of self-government into mere problems of administration. True self-government, Jefferson believed, required the active participation of well-informed citizens. Administration, by contrast, relied on a professional class of increasingly unaccountable government officials, 
And this makes all the difference in the world. As this transfer of power took place, Jefferson believed that as ordinary people were denied the opportunity to run their own affairs, their capacity to govern themselves would diminish and over time disappear. The citizens would lose any attachment to their liberties and lack the will to resist their usurpation by ambitious men like Hamilton and Burr. The inevitable result, Jefferson was convinced, would be the moral corruption of the American people and, in short order, despotism on the European model. Fortunately, he believed there was a way to avoid this calamity, but it required the direct involvement of the people themselves, for they, he had decided, were the repository of the spirit of liberty. Now, how would Jefferson know this? What in his own life would teach him such a thing? Although Jefferson had for many years believed in limited government, at least in theory, it was the real world of the ex- of his real world experience of the embargo that convinced him of it. The forces that had most effectively resisted the embargo, Jefferson recalled, were the townships of New England. This was where the level of government was not only closest to the people, but was a direct expression of the people themselves. The resistance of the New England townships reminded Jefferson just how fierce ordinary Americans could be when their liberties were threatened, in this case by Jefferson himself. Uh, The New England townships, he wrote in July 1816, had proved themselves the wisest invention ever devised by the wit of man for the perfect exercise of self-government and for its preservation. It was there at the local level that the spirit of liberty still lived. This was not a complete surprise to Jefferson, of course. After all, he had held long, held reservations about the federal government itself. The U.S. Constitution itself, he feared, threatened to reduce the states to mere administrative units of the federal government. But by 1816, he had become convinced that the worst predictions of the anti-federalists were surely come true, and his own policies as president, though he never would admit it, were evidence of this fact. Jefferson's remedy for the political difficulties of his time and ours was bold, and when recommendations similar to it are proposed today, they are still controversial. Jefferson sought nothing less than a radical decentralization of government vesting the greatest power, not at the highest, but at the lowest levels. All powers, except those that could be exercised only at the higher levels, were to remain at the unit of government he called ward republics or wards. As he told future future president, then Governor John Tyler, these wards were to be no larger than five or six square miles, units even smaller than Virginia's county courts, and would be the most important in the entire federal system. It was only there, he said, that the voice of the whole people could be fairly, fully, and peaceably expressed. Only there would policies be decided by the common reason of all citizens. Only when the people were fully engaged in securing their own liberties, Jefferson said, was Republican government on the national and even continental scale at all conceivable. The way to have good and safe government, he continued, is not to trust it all, trust it all to one, but to divide it among the many, distributing to everyone exactly the functions he is competent to. 
The national government should be entrusted with severely limited powers, chiefly to regulate relations between the states and between the compact of the states and the federal governments, which is why Jefferson referred to the federal government as the foreign branch. Each state government would be responsible for what concerns the states generally, the counties with county affairs, and the ward republics with everything else. The wards, counties, states, and union of states would constitute a gradation of authorities, establishing a system of fundamental checks and balances for the government, preventing power from being consolidated at higher levels. <coughs> Under Jefferson's plan, the people really would govern themselves. Each man would have a role to play so that he is, in Jefferson's words, a participator in the government of affairs, not merely at an election at one day in the year, but every day. Furthermore, the wards would be responsible for what Jefferson believed was ultimately most vital to the survival of the republic itself, the education of children. Wards would fund, build, and run primary public schools in which children would be taught subjects that would equip them to exercise their liberties responsibly. The establishment and administration of these schools would also provide an ongoing education in self-government for the parents. Now, the notion that schools could be better run by any other general authority of the government than by the parents within each ward, Jefferson declared, is a belief against all experience. Trust any higher authorities with the schools, he said, and you might as well turn over to this higher authority the management of all our farms, our mills, and our merchant stores. In other words, all the functions that later generations of collectivists would, of course, endorse. Jefferson's belief in ward government was not founded in views of education only, however. But he said infinitely more as the means of a better administration of government and the eternal preservation of its republican principles. In the interest of a better administration, wards would also retain authority for the care of the poor, their roads, police, elections, the nomination of jurors, administration of justice in small cases, and elementary exercises of militia. Now, working out these ideas, Jefferson also solved to his own satisfaction one of the knottier problems which with, theori with which theorists of republican government did wrestled, whether populous and geographically extensive countries could also remain free and self-governing. They can indeed, Jefferson decided, but only so long as local government thrived. As a regularly organized power, he said the people in their wards would be able to crush regularly and peacefully the usurpations of their unfaithful agents. In this way, they would uproot tyranny before it could spread. By establishing ward government throughout the Union, Jefferson concluded, we shall be as Republican as a large society can be. Now, it's important to note that in his correspondence on ward government, one of Jefferson's most frequently quoted, yet wildly misconstrued utterances appears. In July 1816, Jefferson asserted that unlike some theorists, he did not regard written constitutions with sanctimonious reverence. Institutions, Jefferson wrote, and this is the quote, must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, 
as new discoveries are made, new truths disclosed, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. We might as well, and this is, the, this is what you hear quoted constantly, we might as well require a man to still wear the coat which fitted him when a boy as civilized society were to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. For years to come, this passage would become a favorite of all those who favor an increasingly flexible interpretation of the U.S. Constitution and seek to enlist Jefferson posthumously in their efforts to expand federal power. But to conscript Jefferson in this way is to misread him completely and to ignore virtually everything else Jefferson said or believed. The subject of this letter, after all, was the revision of the Virginia Constitution, and Jefferson was amenable to this revision, not because he believed it gave the government too little power, but because it gave the government too much. Now, Jefferson's belief in an expanded role for local government is a more radical notion than it might first appear, though its radicalism becomes obvious enough any time someone dares propose, for instance, that parents should control the curriculum of their children's schools. Try it sometime. In recent years, I should add, Jefferson has been described by his collectivist critics, borrowing the language of a later period, as an advocate of states' rights. This is to underestimate the case. What Jefferson proposed was a radical decentralization of government itself, with the states themselves reduced in both authority and importance. Now that Jefferson's recommendations on schools, on the division of government into units closest to the people, on the necessity of restricting the power of the states and the reduction of the federal government to foreign relations, that these recommendations would be uniformly rejected by Virginia and the nation does not mean they lack merit. Whether the United States is a better nation as a result of that rejection or a worse one is far from settled, though I suspect I know, if I may be so bold, what Hayek himself would say. Surveying the wreckage of Europe after two world wars, Hayek observed that we shall never rebuild civilization on the large scale. It is no accident that, on the whole, there was more beauty and decency to be found in the life of small countries, and that among the large ones, there was more happiness and contentment in proportion as they had avoided the deadly blight of centralization. We will never preserve democracy, Hayek went on, if the, all the power and, will, and most of the important decisions rest with an organization too far too big for the common man to survey or comprehend. Nowhere has democracy ever worked well, he wrote, without a great measure of local self-government, providing a school of political training for the people at large as much as for their future leaders. It is only where responsibility can be learned and practiced in affairs with which most people are familiar, he concluded, where it is the awareness of one's neighbor rather than some theoretical knowledge of the needs of other people which guides action, that the ordinary man can take a real part in public affairs because they concern the world he knows, where the scope of knowledge is almost exclusively possessed by the bureaucracy, Hayek ended, 
the creative impulses of the private person must necessarily weaken. Now that, I grant you, is not Jeffersonian poetry. It's not even Madisonian prose. But it is most definitely Hayekian truth. I don't want to go on so long that there's not time for questions. I'd be happy to do my best to answer anything you might raise, including questions about Sally Hemings. Although this looks like far too serious a crowd to be interested in any such thing. Um, you know, I, f I find that most people assume they know a great deal more about Thomas Jefferson than they do. I know uh, I felt this way when I, I felt that when I started the project. And the study of the past is often an exercise in disabusing oneself of misconceptions. Now, this reminds me of something long-forgotten Hoosier philosopher Ken Hubbard once said, <coughs> and I'll close with this thought. It ain't what a man don't know that hurts him, Hubbard said. It's what he knows that ain't true. And if there are questions, I'll be happy to entertain them. Thank you. Let me just take a moment to note that if there are any people lurking out in the hallway, there are seats down front here. Uh, we may have just about filled up the back of the auditorium, but we have some in the front. And let me also take a moment to notice, since you alluded to the matter of race there, that next week we have a forum on race and the state that will include Bruce Bartlett talking about his book on the... Uh, allegedly nefarious racial history of the Democratic Party. Uh, information on that is on our website, and we invite you to take a look at it. And with that, let me invite you to raise your hands to ask questions. We will bring microphones around so it can be captured on tape. And, Alan, you want to call on people? Sir. <laughs> Hand that man a microphone. Thank you. Um, going back to the embargo, what... What alternatives did Jefferson have? Uh, he, was a, he was the president of a very weak country compared to Britain and France. And he, uh, he saw national defense as being one of the functions of the federal government. Um, did, he mis, did he misunderstand uh, the importance of American trade to to uh, Britain and France? Did he just not know enough about economics to know that this wouldn't, wouldn't work? I don't Did think... he have any alternative? I don't think he knew as much about economics as the average Cato senior fellow. Um, and I think he grossly miscalculated. You know, it's a, it's a complicated question for me because uh, I'm so ridiculously pacifistic that I'm very sympathetic with what he tried to do, short of a shooting war. I'm not sure what the alternatives are. It's always easy. It's not easy, but it's, it's tempting to look back on these things and say, well, obviously, he should have done. He, he looked at A and B, and he should have done C. Um, what's fascinating to me about that episode, though, to take it slightly away from the public policy area, although it has lessons there, is this was a perfect example of the intellectual and politics, and Jefferson, as a a theorist who had in his mind what he called an experiment. And he said, we're going to see this experiment through to his conclusion, come hell or high water, no matter what it happens. So the, uh, to the extent that the, that the policy was uh, flawed, he dug his heels in all the more and kept uh, 
fighting for uh, closing more and more loopholes. And it drove him off, off the deep end. He never seemed to come to the, you know, it, your question r- reminds me of something Randolph of Roanoke said about this. He said, he said, do we, uh, Jefferson kept asking them what, what are his alternatives and, and uh, Randolph of Roanoke said, uh, do we have to have an alternative uh, for a man to have a cancer removed? So I, I, the, the alternative was probably to throw in the towel on the whole thing and get involved in a, a, a shooting war. I wish I had a more satisfactory answer. I simply don't. Um, I think the episode is fascinating, the extent to which it reveals Jefferson as a theorist who was impervious to evidence. For, all, for, for a man who viewed himself as a utilitarian and a scientist who, was, uh, who measured things not on theoretical grounds but on, um, purely on the strength of evidence, all the evidence here was against him. And that just made him more determined than ever to see the policy through to a conclusion. Hand the microphone over. Do you think it's realistic that the average Joe Sixpack would would be interested in taking part in governmental decisions on a daily basis? Not now. Um, you know, I, I learned just the other day, it's fascinating to me that, <coughs> I guess at the time of the debate between the Federalists and the, and the Anti-Federalists, that juries, had, it, in, in I think throughout the United States, had the authority to interpret law. And if you have a continual revolving of jury, of, of individuals serving on juries, being involved in that, that's a tremendous education in democracy. I think, I think it's unrealistic to expect a radical decentralization in, in which we are all involved at some level in these decisions. But a movement somewhat back in that, in that direction would probably be profitable. Um, I think that we tend to view a, a common <coughs> a common complaint of political liberals, not classical liberals, but liberal democratic uh, people in this country is that, that, that people don't get out and vote. What do we have to do to get people to vote? Well, to a large degree, if I think that people don't get out to vote because they feel that it doesn't make any difference and that their individual action doesn't matter because they are so far removed. It's fascinating to me that Jefferson and Rush and a few others would predict as early as the 1800s that, um, that, people, that, that we would become a democracy in name only in which the, the power, in which uh, average citizens participated in their government only on election day. And so I can imagine, I can imagine a situation in which people, for example, pick a larger role and we're allowed to do so in the administration of public schools. I think that would be healthy. Um, I, I, I remember arguments, I mentioned the arguments that I heard about dating objectivist women. I can remember discussions of conservatives that thought libertarianism is ridiculous because they said, well, I don't want to have to be constantly negotiating over garbage removal. I just want that done for me. That's well, the same kind of thing. It reminds me also of something Oscar Wilde said. He said, the problem with socialism is it requires too many evenings. 
Well, the kind of, of, of ward republicanism that Jefferson was talking about would require many evenings. Yes, sir. I think it was in a letter to uh, Adams that Jefferson expressed uh, what is the purpose of grief, that he had so much grief in his life with the loss of his wife and his children. And I'm wondering, uh, you've got a book in your, or a chapter in your book on the debt he, he built up with, uh, you know, the fine, fine wine and, and di- dining and, and obviously so many visitors are wanting to see him. Does, does the grief explain some of the contradictions in his personality where he, uh, Sally Hemings or or the or the debt, and it seems like he was you know addicted to uh, the lifestyle, maybe to counter the incredible grief that he went through throughout his life. Well, you, that's that's good, interesting question because it's there's a lot of levels to it. But by the way, as far as the wine, Jefferson himself drank very little of it. He and and he watered it down. Go figure. I, I understand that, but I just threw that in. Um, what Jeff, the Jeffersons uh, believed, he could never understood, he said, the economy of grief. He didn't understand what value it could possibly play. And he was one of those sort of stiff upper lip fellows who believed that, uh, that the only way to deal with these problems was to put them out of your mind and get involved in a project which accounts, I think, for his sort of almost frantic uh, accomplishment. And he would, he would tell his daughters, you know, don't, don't dwell on that. that that's, that's the way you lose your mind, basically, which was, is fascinating, the, the idea that if your mind wasn't constantly occupied and even your hands in some undertaking, that you might fall apart uh, psychologically. I don't feel that way. The fact that Jefferson would state that suggests that he had some rather deep fears of, of losing his mind. Um, I know there was a lot more to your question than that. Is that, is that close? Yeah, he had this remarkable ability. When, his, um, when he was in the White House, wasn't called the White House then, and his daughter Mariah died. I think she died when he was in the White House. One of the daughters, <coughs> uh, one of his friends um, noted that Jefferson never mentioned this and continued with his entertainment at the White House with the f- dinners and that sort of thing and explain this in terms of his being um, his, his dedication to public service. This was sort of the way Jefferson justified this to himself, that the people expected him to continue to work. And this friend said, you know, he miscalculated, that we all understood, and, and that, that it would have been better, actually, uh, she felt, for him to have taken some time off, and that everybody understood this, but I think it was psychologically impossible for Jefferson to have done such a thing. I mean, when he broke down, he broke down and he couldn't do anything. Uh, as during the embargo, but it also at other times of his life. He would get these terrible headaches and couldn't function. Um, 
obviously, after the death of the daughter, he functioned perfectly well um, in a weird way. I think that, I think that explains his con- compulsive accomplishment. And if he hadn't you know, been able to put the unpleasant things out of his mind and concentrate on a project that he had before him, he, of course, wouldn't be, have done all the things for which we remember him. So maybe our, his loss is our gain, you know. Let's take one last question and then break for wine. Jefferson's thought on these, this happy universe of yeoman farmers um, making decisions as though this was a, a landmark of libertarian thought. But is this not – couldn't one say the same criticism of this alleged thought as one would make of the embargo? That having witnessed the American Revolution, which was not won by happy yeoman farmers um, making de- military decisions, uh, you, a centralized leader – Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the Louisiana Territory would still be French if this had been left to the deliberation of yeoman farmers. Mm-hmm. So is this idea of this happy universe of yeoman farmers any more realistic than working men of all lands unite? No. <laughs> um, no, it's not. And that's part of what's fascinating about Jefferson. He, he really believed he was a scientist. I don't think the term didn't exist at the time. But he believed that he was a utilitarian, that he was a pragmatist, that he looked at all things. And, and yet he had this metaphysical, this faith in this metaphysics of rationalism that um, uh, made all of this stuff. Uh, the, the, what I try to do in this book, unlike most people who write about Jefferson, who are, are immediately swept up into the abstractions and the ideas. I wanted to view the ideas and the abstractions in the light of the material reality of Jefferson's world, okay? And I'll give you, I'll address your question in a, in a somewhat different way about the yeoman farmers. There are re- there's a reason that this book is constructed in the way it is, okay? There's a compositional, there's a symphonic structure to it, all right? And the cha- if you notice, the chapter in which Jefferson says that it's only, uh, virtue can only be sustained, preserved, etc., on these these small farms where independent men work their farms and and and, and virtue is cultivated. And uh, these are God's greatest repositories of their chosen, his chosen people. That chapter ends... The next chapter tells the story of the yeoman farmers who were his nephews who went off to, to, to Kentucky together and began to drink heavily. And uh, uh, one night, uh, uh, one of the, the slaves dropped a, uh, a pitcher, I believe, belonging to their dead mother. And they rounded up the slaves and proceeded to butcher one of them and throw his body into the fireplace. There's a reason the, the theoretical, Jefferson's theoretical discussion of the virtue of yeoman farmers is followed by this incident, which Jefferson never acknowledged. So, um, again, you see this continually in this book. It's, a, it's the realities of material day-to-day life bumping up against Jefferson's uh, almost spooky idealism. 
wine, right. wine now? Thank you very much.